0: Are we, are we live now? I'm
1: recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast.
2: Mumbrella Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, brought to you by Budget Direct. I'm Tim Burrows.
1: And I'm Vivian Kelly.
2: Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Brittany Rigby. Hi. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later, we'll be talking to Ten's Rod Prosser and Bev McGarvey about introducing a new look, MasterChef.
3: I suspect we had less anxiety than maybe we should have done because we'd seen it, but we still had a bit of anxiety.
2: 10's mysterious new channel.
3: The world has moved to a place that music can be a strong vertical within a brand, but it has to have broad entertainment as well to service broad audiences.
2: And reworking the 2020 schedule.
3: So it's just about us maximising um, the audience and the momentum that we have to ensure that we do have great shows where we may have you know different shows than we planned.
1: And later, I'll also be talking to broadcasters Meadow Kine and Alex Dyson.
3: But first, the
2: week's topics...
1: BuzzFeed leaves Australia.
2: The evaporating job market.
1: The cat misses out on another deal.
2: And Qantas gets back to marketing. Well, it's been another week where the disastrous effects of the COVID lockdown cost jobs in the media and marketing world. So as usual at the moment, it seems to be a question where to begin. And Viv, I think it will begin with you. Thursday morning we learned that BuzzFeed is giving up on Australia. You wrote that one.
1: Yeah, so that broke overnight uh, for when Australians were asleep before waking up on Thursday morning that the international operation of BuzzFeed has made the decision to focus on big-hitting stories coming out of the US, which means the UK and Australia are no longer a priority. They're effectively ending their editorial presence in Australia. So Australian consumers can still go to BuzzFeed and there will still be the listicle content that people like to make fun of and the more serious sort of political news. But there won't be reporters on the ground here, you know, holding politicians to account or doing some of the refugee and political reporting that they've been doing in recent years.
2: And do we know? Are they keeping some salespeople around?
1: I did ask that question of the BuzzFeed headquarters. It was difficult to get answers because of the time differences and because of all the communications that I imagine they're getting. They they sent a very non specific note back when I said you know, are you keeping salespeople and non news sort of content producers, content generators on the ground here? And and they sort of sent a vague, yes, those people still exist type response, but it's not really clear how that will work when they're effectively not prioritising or producing Australian content.
2: And presumably the reason is simply that there are less, uh, and I know not everything they do is advertising, they're very fond of kind of what we'd call native advertising, but there's less advertising dollars around presumably is the reason they're having to respond to their pressures in this way.
1: Yes. So, of course, they focused on you know the unprecedented uh, situation that we're in and said that the reason for effectively pulling out of Australia was economic and strategic reasons so that they could focus on news that brings the big hits in the United States. So a lot of the release and and communications about this was just focused on the US. They did kind of brush over the fact that they're effectively giving up on Australia and they really wouldn't be drawn much more on, on why that decision was made. But, you know, if you're pulling out of the country, obviously the economic justification for it being there isn't there anymore.
2: Well, Hannah, this has been a bit of a staged retreat, really hasn't it? because I, I I suppose it will be a little bit less than a decade since they arrived became quite a big operation for a while, and then they 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 pulled back several months ago, so it's not the first time they've reduced the amount of resource being invested in BuzzFeed here in Australia.
4: Yeah, it was actually a year ago in January that they axed fifteen percent of their staff, so their entire editorial. Or you know, news covering team in this country was led up by Lane Sainty and only three other journalists. So it's not like they had a particularly big operation here at all. Anyway, I think what we're seeing with Buzzfeed is what we see with quite a few of those kind of American-based digital publishers. Obviously, Huffington Post had a really similar story in Australia, and they still haven't really quite decided what they're doing here. I think. You know, on the face of it, we look like a really easy market to slide into and put up a couple of reporters here, but it's just not going to get the kind of coverage that you're going to get in the US. You're just not going to get those clicks. You're not going to get the same amount of ad dollars, especially if you've literally only got four reporters on the ground here. I think it's a real shame just because BuzzFeed has become so much more than You know, those listicles that it launched as BuzzFeed News now is a very well-respected publication. And I think they were doing some really important things here. I know they had kind of weirdly specific verticals that they were covering here, but it was really important journalism. And we've seen them break some massive stories just over the last year. So for them to completely shut up shop here is really disappointing because I'm not sure that we have anyone kind of doing it in exactly the same way that they were doing it.
2: Britt, you were nodding about that point that uh, Buzzfeed had actually started doing some quite important work.
5: Yeah, I mean, you look at the the beats that each of those four journos was on, or three plus Lane, the editor, I should say. And you had, you know, one who was really specifically focused on refugee issues, who was, you know, holding the government to account over things happening on Nauru. You had Gina Rushton who, you know, has become one of the you know, the best journalists really in the country, I would argue, given her, you know, reproductive rights coverage and what are typically branded as women's issues, but are really important, you know, health and social and cultural issues as well. And then Cameron Wilson, I think is the most recent journalist on their team. He hasn't been there as long, but he was particularly focused on tech and the internet um, and, I think that's often a space that can be deemed frivolous or a bit dumb or like who cares about TikTok, but actually, you know, really matters. And so, you know, I think between the three of them, given that was only three of them, they covered a lot of ground. And, you know, Hannah mentioned stuff coming out of there, the, you know, you know, was really big and exclusive. Something that comes to mind for me was, you know, that Tracy Spicer story that we spoke about not too long ago that came out of Buzzfeed. So, it's a huge loss, I think, and really, you know, a big shame for the local, the local market.
2: For readers who aren't familiar, the Tracy Spicer one was the the ones where, um, I guess, the complications of the local Me Too movement is perhaps a short way of putting
6: it
5: yeah there were concerns about you know um survivors confidentiality and you know making sure that when you're hearing stories that are you know me too focused that you're protecting those sources and and how you can owe a duty of care to them but also not overwhelm yourself if you're asking you know for people to submit those sorts of stories but not necessarily having the resources to adequately back it up
2: and it was BuzzFeed that raised those questions um Um, Viv, I suppose it almost feels like now we're going to have to have a standard question, whether, or whenever, and it might be a little while before it happens again, a big US or US-based brand launches in Australia. And I think of also, as, as, as well as the, the examples mentioned, uh, Pandora, the streaming service, all of these people come along, they make this huge noise about, you know, it's a it, it's an English-speaking market, it's just the same. Um, feels like we're going to have to always start asking the question, are you committed for the long term?
1: Yeah, we we can ask, but I don't know that we'll uncover anything particularly truthful or interesting in that when BuzzFeed made the last round of redundancies that Hannah spoke about before back in 2019, they were asked the question and and they said, you know, we are investing in Australia long term. Now, of course, in BuzzFeed's defence, they could not have predicted uh COVID-19 or coronavirus and if they could have you know they probably should have warned everybody but you know they say these things they say of course they're committed they say of course they're here for the long term and we're all in this together but when push comes to shove those statements can change those sentiments can change and those realities can change so no one's going to be up front and say, look, Tim, look, Viv, no, we're not committed. We're pretty flaky and we're going to get out of here the second we can. But I, I don't think it's a great time for for a publisher to be launching is what I'd say.
2: Well, speaking of not a great time, um, as we've observed listings on the Mumbrella Jobs Board of have- pretty much vanished since the crisis began you know each each morning as we're preparing our our daily newsletter we we include a count of how many jobs of the day and you know i can remember days when 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 it was in the triple digits it was you know 100 or 100 plus new jobs the the number has been zero quite often recently um we've got some more data this week from seek viv
1: yeah, so when I started at Mumbrella at the tail end of 2016, you know, we often wouldn't include the job number teaser in the email subject line if it was below 100 because we didn't think that was sufficient to get people to click through to open the newsletter if there were only 26 jobs going. These days, you know, we're singing in excitement if there's 9 new jobs listed in a 24-hour period and SEEK seems to be confirming that sort of anecdotal evidence that we at Mumbrella have. So the way that SEEK categorises jobs in jobs for marketing and communications, they were down 60.9% in April compared to March, while the category of advertising arts and media was down by 60.5%. And they they have a graph showing each individual sector and, and how negatively it's been affected. And those two are right up there. They're only outdone by a few industries. So we've definitely been really, really hard hit. And it's just an indication that There aren't a lot of new jobs going. You know, maybe not everybody uses Seek. There are, of course, certain jobs that you can get without jumping onto seek.com.au. But that's a huge drop month on month for these um, once booming industries.
4: Yeah, and I think it's worth noting as well that almost all the media companies that have gone through You know, those big redundancies or have had to stand people down or whatever they've had to do during this time, almost all of them are currently on hiring freezes unless there are roles that desperately need to be replaced. So I think it's not even just nobody's looking for new roles, it's also they can't fill existing roles they currently have. And also, I would imagine there's a lot less people leaving jobs at the moment as well, because you're not going to leave a job that you've got that's comfortable when you're reading figures like this and thinking, well, we're. Where else am I going to go?
2: And while we are on the topic of the lockdown, um, Brittany, um, you uh, wrote a feature this week which offered an interesting insight into um, how you run a big agency from home. You were talking to OMD's boss, Amy Buchanan. I, I particularly enjoyed the picture of her grandly walking out the front door each way before each day, saying goodbye to her child before then sneaking back in.
5: Yeah, I loved that too. Her little girl doesn't quite understand that she's working if she's at home and so she's been going into the garage then waiting for the nanny to kind of occupy the kid and then sneaking back in and running upstairs to her actual home office. Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed my chat with Amy. I've had three chats now, so that's the first piece that's gone up, but I chatted to Kara's Sue Squalachie last week and I've just just before this podcast, chatted to UM's Fiona Johnston. Not meaning to necessarily chat to all women, but it is interesting in that I realized during my chat with Fiona, oh, the three people I've spoken to are women. And it's very interesting how those chats kind of made me feel and how they're thinking about their agencies and their people during this time. And there's, I think, the common thread a real sense of care And not to say that, you know, they don't care about their people or their clients or their product at the best of times. that is literally their job. But there's just, I don't know, something really genuinely nice to hear people, you know, talking about their employees and hoping that they're okay and noting that, you know, while they may be in a more comfortable position in terms of housing and financial status and The people they have around them, there are people who are quite literally isolated, living by themselves or living in a share house and don't have, you know, contact throughout the day. Um, Something that Amy said, which I thought was, you know, really interesting is when she was communicating with her leadership team about how to go about communicating to then the wider team, she was like, don't forget that this might be the only call of the day that some of these people get and you can't take that responsibility lightly you know we have a responsibility to make sure that people are safe but also that they're actually okay you know safety means mental safety as well so yeah there've been really lovely conversations and um, and I'm grateful that you know Amy and the others have taken the time to do so because it is a time where it feels like everyone is you know kind of floating through the ether of uncertainty but also having like more to do than ever
2: next news call says no to the cat while there it looked like Anthony Catalano was about to become king of regional Australia having bought Nine's unwanted regional papers left over from their Fairfax deal he seemed to be on the verge of doing something similar with News Corp um, but Hannah then it all sort of seemed to just trip up on the finish line what went down?
4: It was quite fun watching this um, play out because I think to begin with we uh, the AFR got the story I think initially and ran it um, and to begin with, we're all like, oh, you know, what What load of old bollocks is this? And then as we started looking into it a bit more, it became evident that it was in fact a story. And then Michael Miller himself confirmed that it was a story. So um, to begin with, it was, um, yeah, as you said, ACM boss Anthony Catalano was looking at, to snap up News Corp's uh, portfolio of over 100 community and regional newspapers I believe one of the key sticking points, however, in the deal was of those 100 papers which fall under, you know, outside of News Corp's um, metro titles, which ones he would actually get. It's quite interesting if you look at it, ACM's stronghold very much in New South Wales and Victoria, whereas News Corp's regional titles have got a really big in the Queensland market. So it would have kind of allowed him to expand what he's got very neatly Also worth noting in there, some of the uh, community titles, including the Wentworth Courier and the North Shore Times, are massive in terms of the real estate estate advertising and have got big deals with realestate.com.au, which is obviously News Corp owned. So again, although Anthony Catalano has said to us in the past and probably will do again in the future that he is not aiming for Domain 2.0, they would have really helped him on his push forward in that space too however a couple of days later or it might even have been the next day this week has been quite a blur uh News Corp came out with an internal email which was then forwarded onto the press which said that Michael Miller had just said that the conversations which were held with the most logical acquirer did not result in a transaction. It wasn't clear what the issue was, although I believe it might have been related to those titles as we discussed before. But in place of that, we got instead a restructure, which kind of saw a lot of people take on a lot more responsibility and a bit of a reshuffle around um, those regional titles. So it seems Now News Corp is pretty focused on keeping those titles and that the cat has been firmly shoved outside. (laughs)
2: And do we think we'll see some of them close as a result or at least their print editions?
4: Well, we've already seen uh, News Corp shut 60 titles or at least their print editions for, you know, however long as the coronavirus epidemic causes a problem there. So we have seen that happen. And I suspect, as we have thought previously, that maybe it'll be a lot harder to come back from that. And it's a lot easier once you've already started closing titles, even if you are saying it's temporary, to then just leave them closed. So I wouldn't be surprised if unfortunately we do see that. But ACM has done that too. They've obviously paused a lot of their printing. They've closed some of their printing presses. So it's hard to tell what it's going to look like outside of this. And I do wonder whether we're going to get a better result now than we would have done if ACM had bought those titles and then maybe had an excuse to close more. But you know, without a crystal ball, it's Quite hard to predict where this is going to go. Well,
2: Viv, you know the cat a little bit. When he says he's not interested in Domain 2.0, I assume what he really means is he's really interested in Domain 2.0, but he can't say.
1: Are you trying to get me to say on the record in audio form that the cat is a liar? Because you will not <laughs> cut me into doing that, Tim what I would say is, is Anthony Catalano always has bigger plans. You know, he's not a small deals guy. He doesn't do things by halves. He wouldn't be interested in being a small bit player. He's an entrepreneur who can identify, and I, I hate to use these business buzzwords, but he can identify synergies and he can see how things can be rolled up and feed into each other. When I spoke to him quite a while ago now, you know, when he left Domain and then started pursuing other interests in media agencies which were heavily focused on property clients. He flagged that he'd always thought it was a good idea to have media and real estate and the agencies that buy the ads, you know, all rolled up together so that it becomes a sort of self-feeding beast, and he's had success there before, so I'm not sure why he wouldn't want to do it again, but I think this is a very different market now in 2020 with coronavirus and with regional media under pressure more so than ever before and the real estate market under more pressure than it's been in ages and real estate listings under pressure and it's sort of a perfect storm of everything that the cat is interested in business-wise is under pressure at the moment. So any grand plans he had for not domain.com.au might be somewhat delayed.
2: And do you think that for now his attempt to buy Prime, the, the regional TV network, is is that on the back burner? Because obviously Seven wanted to do its own merger and that didn't come off. So it feels like someone's got to end up owning Prime and we don't know quite where yet.
1: I feel like in twenty 2020- twenty anything and everything can be put on the back burner. You know, the CEO of Seven West Media, James Warburton, months ago was talking about the deal with Prime that he wanted to do as if it was basically already done. Uh, That fell over when Catalano and Bruce Gordon sort of acquired enough shares to, to block that and make it not possible. But nothing else has really happened since then it it seems like it's a bit of a stalemate James wants it Prime wants something to happen because they're just languishing around but nobody's really acting so there's just this poor old regional media company that wants a buyer various people that apparently want to buy it and nothing's happening
4: I think as well, we've obviously seen a massive push and I believe the last um, people to speak out about it were Anthony Catalano and Bruce Gordon, who also voted against that um, Prime Media and Seven deal, was that, you know, the issue at the moment is that they can't acquire these things that they want because of the current media laws that are around what they're allowed to own and what they aren't. And I think, especially this year, given it's going to be really interesting to see, given the ACCC's approval of the Bauer and Pacific merger has thus far resulted in about 250 job losses, it'll be really interesting to see whether that provides more fuel for them to argue that these laws should be changed because you're already doing enough damage with the laws the way they are, or whether the ACCC flies the other way and says we need to stop things like this happening because we need to protect these jobs. So... I suspect that in the current environment, we're going to see those laws addressed sooner rather than later. And if they do change, then we might see the cat and Bruce Gordon start to be a bit more aggressive.
2: Next, we find out how 10 is faring during the COVID crisis.
1: And have you checked out Mumbrella's agency report card yet? Exclusive to Mumbrella Pro, it's an in-depth analysis of the 25 most talked about creative agencies in Australia with two new reports being dropped every week. TBWA Melbourne and Clemenger BBDO Melbourne are the latest report cards released on Umbrella Pro. Other agency report cards already released include The Monkees, Thinkerbell, CHE Proximity and DDB Sydney. To see how the expert industry panel scored them all, take the free trial today. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash pro for more information.
2: Joining us now is TENS Chief Sales Officer Rod Prosser and Chief Content Officer Beverly McGarvey.
1: And since you last joined us on the podcast, Bev, you've also been promoted to Executive Vice President following the resignation of CEO Paul Anderson. That was announced back in
3: March. So a few quiet weeks to settle into the new role. Yeah, it's been an interesting time to take a, um, an expanded brief, but also a really good time because there's lots of things happening and obviously, which we can get to later, although it is a very challenging time. Our audiences are going really well um, across the 10 brands, but also across Nickelodeon and MTV. So it, it, it is an interesting time, but also, um, you know, both in a positive way as well as a more challenging way. So what, um, what's the hardest decision you've had to make so far? Oh, I, I think the really hard decisions so far in terms of the content piece have been around shows. So obviously it's, you know, pretty obvious that we didn't shoot Survivor in Fiji right now. We were going to um, produce a second cycle at the moment. So we've obviously had to delay that. We had to delay the start of the Amazing Race. So those sorts of decisions are quite challenging in one way in terms of what we do in those slots, but also um, they're quite easy in a way. If the borders are closed, we're not flying to Fiji. It's quite simple. So it's just about us maximizing um, the audience and the momentum that we have to ensure that we do have great shows where we may have, you know, different shows than we planned. But that's an opportunity as well. It's forced us to do things differently. So um, that's probably been the big cause in terms of content.
1: And what about internally, much like most media companies and holding groups and agencies, including ourselves, you've had to make some difficult decisions to sort of navigate your way through COVID-19, including moving to shorter working weeks and whatnot. How did you come to that decision and and decide on the nine-day fortnight as the way forward?
3: Um, Well, obviously, like every other media company in Australia and the world, um, you know, the business is quite challenged, so we wanted to make some decisions that would um, support us moving forward um, and have the least impact on people and on the business. Obviously, we're um, in the middle also of a merger process, so there's there's many things that we're undertaking at the moment, um, you know, to address that.
1: So, speaking of those challenges, Rod, does it feel a bit unfair that your audiences are so high? And MasterChef, for example, is doing so well, but the commercial dollars aren't necessarily there to back you when you're at your best.
0: I don't think it feels unfair. I think, given we're all in this together and it's universal, um, I think it's it's you know it's a shame. But having said that, I, you know, look for, for us, it you know we're taking a much more optimistic view, um, particularly around the MasterChef franchise, because we've obviously clearly got a great opportunity to to you know monetize it. Uh, why we're in this current season and we, and we are seeing um, and talking to a lot of commercial partners that may have come off last year that are re-engaging but really importantly for us, um, you know, as we get into the second half, we're now talking to clients about um, Junior MasterChef. So, you know, look, I think, you know, the silver lining is we've got, we've got an extension of the show where hopefully we're in a, we're, we're in a much better um, market
2: we'll explore junior Master Chef a bit more in a minute. um something else I was just interested to, to get both of your thoughts on is something that I'm sure observers would have said even you know three or four months ago was compared to seven and nine, ten has a weakness when it comes to sport. Has this experience changed how you think about the value of sport in the future
3: um I would say we don't perceive ourselves to have a weakness when it comes to sport. We have a content strategy that is not so heavily reliant on sport. And um, I think as we, I know we say this all the time, but as we've demonstrated with i Celebrity for the last two years now, we have demonstrated that we can put up an entertainment schedule uh, against a strong sports schedule and come out doing incredibly well, if not in some cases winning. So, I think we would say that our strategy is slightly different. We, you know, we have the F1, we have the Melbourne Cup. So we do make strategic investment in premium sport where it makes sense for us. Um, Although at this point, obviously, the others have had more changes in their sports schedule and we haven't had those changes. So at this point, it has probably have been more to our advantage in terms of our audience in the short term. Is that fair, Rod?
0: Yeah, and certainly from a certainly from a commercial point of view, there's no question. Sport sport holds um, value and holds its place. Um, Beverly's point around um, I'm a celebrity is spot on, and 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 truthfully, for us, we've now seen seven months of uh, revenue share growth, uh, including um, including last month, and significant growth. And I think that's with or without sport. So you know, I, I I'm a firm believer that you know sport has a place in a schedule. But I just, I'd question, you know, brands and clients over-indexing and getting caught up in allocating too much share just to be a part of a sporting code.
1: So speaking of being part of a sporting code, what do you make of everything that's going down with the NRL and AFL and trying to get those games back up and running and the negotiations that are going on with broadcasters? What's that been like watching play out for your competitors?
3: Uh, To be honest, we're just watching it as casual observers, you know, we're interested in when those fixtures come back on so that we can ensure that our schedule is really strong. Um, But that's kind of our our level of interest in it. Um, Obviously, it feels like there'll be a you know, it'll be heavily weighted towards the back of the year. Um, Luckily, we have a really strong schedule and really good momentum as we go into the back of the year. But that's probably um, we're watching it in the same way that you guys are to see what happens, I think.
2: And I just want to go back to something Rob was talking about. You alluded to Junior Master Chef, which had just done the casting announcement uh, uh, re- relatively recently. Now I, I, I remember looking back at the the beginning of the Master Chef phenomenon ten years ago, and there was a moment when you were doing Junior Master Chef think there was a um celebrity master chef as well i i don't think you got as far as doing master chef professionals but certainly there was a moment where it felt that um you could have been accused of cannibalizing your most valuable brand and it felt like you pulled back from that a while stuck with just the main master chef is there a risk that you do cannibalize your incredibly valuable master chef franchise by having this second one and going back to junior master chef do you
3: think i think I think that's a really interesting question. Um, we ha- This is our 12th season of MasterChef. We have had five spin-off seasons. We haven't had a spin-off season for a very long time. We have had two cycles of junior, two All-Stars and one Professionals, and though they were quite some time ago, um, I absolutely share um, your sentiment that you have to protect the mothership and we absolutely will. Junior MasterChef at the end of the year is a short event season and also, you kind of have to judge these things tonally. We've been talking about doing junior really for a couple of years now, and the conversation has really heated up in the last year. And where we find ourselves now is in a moment in time where people are embracing more than ever family content and MasterChef is much loved and people are really engaged in it. So I don't think that having a short run at the back of this year, in a year where people are really loving family shows, they're loving cooking shows, their loving master chef, that this is not the right year to do it. We think this is absolutely the right year to do it. Does it mean that we will continue to do cycles of spin-offs? Absolutely not. We will continue to protect the mothership. But I also think you have to be able to be flexible in your opinion when the environment changes and we're in an environmentally different position than we were a year ago. So I suspect that this will be a spin-off that we do and then we won't do spin-offs again for a while until something changes again or there's an opportunity that avails itself.
2: Well, Rod, let me bring you in as well on that one because I, I presume your sponsors of MasterChef must have been delighted with how the reboot has gone in terms of the audience size and the kind of demographics it's been talked to. So, do you feel that there is appetite for the for the addition to the franchise?
0: Yeah, I mean, hundred percent. We're we're seeing that already. We saw that immediately, in fact. And you know, look, I always said about MasterChef. You know, people are always going to go to the first first episode just to just to um, you know, see, see, see what the the format looks like with the new judges. So we were always, COVID or not, going to get a, an attract a large audience. And I, I think, you know, what we're seeing now is, you know, traction with the commercial partners, not only within this current series, but also in Junior MasterChef.
1: And speaking of those new judges, there was it feels like a lifetime ago that we were talking about Gary, Matt, and George as as hosts of MasterChef, and then whether or not the franchise could survive without them and what the new lineup would look like. Do you feel sort of justified now in, in the decision that you made and do you feel like it all paid off now that the new lineup has seemingly resonated with viewers so well?
3: Um, I think where we're at in the franchise is in a place where we needed to reboot it for the future. So I think We're very happy about both things. We had George, Gary and Matt doing an amazing job and they built the foundation of a franchise that has been incredible for us. And now we are in a privileged position that we have three more judges that really resonate with audiences. So I think we are very happy about that and you cannot make change of that size and not admit that there's some apprehension about whether that change will work in the way that you hope it did. So I think we had small amount of anxiety but also we had seen the episodes the guys were really good um so I suspect we had less anxiety than maybe we should have done because we'd seen it but we still had a bit of anxiety and there is um you know I think we're very happy now that the audience has responded the way that we hoped they would because we really um, have a great belief in Jock and Andy and Mel um to take us forward and I think they're doing that really well.
0: Yeah, and else. certainly the s- sponsor feedback is, has, has um, echoed that. I mean, most of the major sponsors, you know, the feedback I'm, I'm getting now is that, that they were always part of the show. It feels like that they're woven into the IP of MasterChef, which is, you know, which is the magical part.
2: Something else um, that uh, has recently reached the public domain is that you're thinking about uh, another, I don't know what the preferred terminology, do you prefer secondary channel or multi-channel? Um, but perhaps you can tell us what you're thinking about that.
3: Um, well, we'll be adding what we're calling a fourth channel. We currently have three, um, so we'll be adding a fourth, and um, unfortunately we're not in a position to give you a great deal more information, but obviously uh, you know, Rod and I have been talking for many years now about how our, our strategy is to service under 50 audiences, and this channel will support us in that strategy.
2: And maybe talk us through the, your additional channels outside of 10 itself.
3: Um, Well, we have Bold and Peach. And obviously, we rebranded two years ago now. So Bold, I'm afraid when I say this, I'll jinx us. But Bold has had something like 66 weeks consecutive growth. And Peach has now had kind of close to 20 weeks growth. And that is built largely on um, a very clear vision of what is on those channels. So if you see Bold, it's premium us network content so it's things like ncisla and svu those big us shows that you know truthfully 10 15 years ago used to play really successfully on the main channels and now local content is what drives the main channels which is amazing and those shows sit on bold what we've really done with peach is provided an alternative to bold and 10 and it is mainly comedy driven by things such as seinfeld and friends what we have learned over the years with those multi-channels is um, largely they need famous brands because if you're channel hopping and you see Jennifer Aniston and friends you'll you'll go oh i love this episode the multi channels need a lot of that um, in order to get the ratings um, that we really want them to have
2: and presumably over time you get your hands on more and more of the cbs franchises as time goes on so i found myself thinking that uh, a new a new channel could be a great spot for for instance putting the us survivor on
3: Uh, Yes, uh, we certainly have great access to the CBS content and obviously now all the um, Viacom brands. There are certain deals that preclude um, all of those arrangements. And a US survivor actually sits with Nine at the moment, because that is a a legacy deal from when Nine had the CBS output deal, um, probably 13, 14 years ago now, and some of those series are run of series. So you'll notice that we have SVU, and since we have SVU, I think that NBC Universal deal moved about three or four times, but some of those legacy arrangements still have a long-tail impact even now.
2: So would uh, would you like to swap SVU for Survivor then?
3: Um, well, we're very happy to have our local Survivor, and the US Series is amazing, um, but w- SVU is excellent. It's such a strong performer. It's like 20-something seasons now, so SVU is one of those shows that's like a really reliable multi-channel performer. So I think um, it's good to be happy with what you've got sometimes.
1: <laughs> so now that Tim has pushed his Survivor agenda as a Survivor <laughs> superfan, uh, it's time to push my agenda as a Bachelor superfan fan. Uh, what's what's going on with your scheduling plans around that? I know that you've already filmed Bachelor in Paradise, but traditionally that would have already shown by now and consumers are yet to see it. You had to pause filming of The Bachelor because of, I presume, all the saliva swapping that's not allowed in the COVID-19 restrictions. So what does your slate look like for 2021 with all of these production pauses and changes?
3: Um. Well, we have paused Bachelor. That will go back into production relatively soon. As you say, we have Bachelor in Paradise up our sleeve, which we're very excited about and will be coming along shortly. Um, and I think there's, you know, people will have an appetite for some Bachelor content now because they haven't had it for a while. Um, and the series is fantastic. Paradise is a really strong series this year. We, Bachelor and Bachelorette will be produced and air this year. We go back into production shortly, abiding by all of the regulations. Um, I think a lot of our shows have either stayed in production, had pauses and will go back into production or have had to be delayed. But we are just managing each show on an individual basis because the complexities in each show. Cooking is obviously different than Bachelor. The good thing about Bachelor, and I know that, you know, for example, Seven have managed to produce Big Brother, to a degree, some of those shows are isolation shows anyway, because you are effectively isolated in an environment where you don't you know, mingle with outside people. So some of the production methodology of the show protects us. And then in other cases, we have just had to be rigorous with our social distancing, with our deep cleaning and all of that sort of thing. So we're taking um, all of those things very seriously. Um, you know, and we're also very committed to getting our shows on and to keep our momentum and to keep our brands um, at the forefront of people's minds. So I think we can say to Bachelor fans that those shows will be all coming soon. Um, you wouldn't need to be, you know, you could probably guess Bachelor and Paradise will be along first, given that it's pre-recorded. Um, so that will be first, and then the others will roll out in the normal sequence.
2: Another uh, recent development is, for people who aren't, have, aren't following too closely in the US, uh, uh, Viacom and CBS have come closer together as one family, which effectively puts MTV into... Uh, into your world Uh, and we've now seen uh, the MTV channels um, really take the I guess all of the dominant spots now when it comes to the music channels on Foxtel. Maybe start with you Rod, Um, how are you talking to the market about the opportunity with, with those kind of really famous music channels?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. Look, the first the first part really of the integration, particularly here um, in Australia, was really bringing the sales teams together, and obviously that that meant a parting of ways with Foxtel Media. Um, so we've now we've now completed that. So we we have a we have an in-house um, um, brand uh, integration team sitting within our uh, Ten Effect team, and equally we've now got our, our um, Sales people representing um, all, all of the Viacom channels, including all the MTV um, channels. But I think it goes back to that notion we were talking earlier around really claiming that under-50s position. And we, we've been now in market for, for several months Presenting presenting what that that combined proposition looks like, and whilst there, you know there there's a free to channel and STV channels, it's a really strong combined um, under fifties um, proposition, and it has resonated, which is which is great. It's not not obviously music's not for all all clients, um, certainly for us we've 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 found who those that niche client those niche clients are and really sort of dialed up what they can do across our whole playground. So yeah it's been it's been well received.
2: I have a, a final attempt for me to try and get it out of you you're thinking on the uh, the additional free to air channel. Um could it be a music channel? Is the public ready for MTV on free to air?
3: I think it will it will service under fifty audiences. I think MTV now isn't particularly just a music channel anymore. It's obviously a music brand, but even if you look at MTV, they have a lot of brands on there that are reality and entertainment. So I think um, the world has moved to a place that music can be a strong vertical within a brand, but it has to have broad entertainment as well to service broad audiences. So um, you're very good at trying to trick us into telling you that, but, you know, <laughs> we've had no, our conversation
2: morning. You can't blame me for trying. So um, no. are you a fan of Geordie Shaw?
3: Everybody's a father, Geordie, sure.
2: <laughs> Too true. Now, Rod, um, well, back to you. Um, how do you think the trading environment will change after COVID when we're looking back on it? For instance, are the days of in-person upfronts gone, do you think? Look, I, I don't think so.
0: I, I think that this year we're going to be very cautious around how we roll out our, our upfronts. Um, certainly, You know, doing the virtual up close was really interesting for us, and we had a high participation in that. So I think there's something in doing those uh, presentations in a virtual style. I think that you know, you think about how we're all um, meeting on Zoom or or whatever um, you know, video conference call. People are using. I I think that I think the world will change. No, No question, the world will change, and I think that'll impact the trading. Um, conversations that we that we have. But I think largely, we will get back to some sort of normality. And I think the big, the big shows, the upfronts, um, uh, all the networks put on with their upfronts um, will still exist. And they're an important part of how we roll out our um, year ahead. So yes, I think the world will change, but I do think the upfronts will be back in some sort of form at some point.
1: And Bev, a bit of a tricky question from me before we wrap up. At Mumbrella, we've been quite critical or observational in company structures when there's been a departure of a CEO. So, on the agency side, White Grey merged to form White Grey. They had co CEOs. VML and YNR merged to become VML Y&R and had co CEOs. Mm-hmm. When Paul Anderson, your CEO, departed, you didn't sort of get a direct replacement of the 10 CEO and instead you've sort of got this combined structure. Do you think that can work for 10 without a 10 CEO in title?
3: Um, I think it can work. And the main reason for that is that we report into London and we report into um, the president of the group that we're in. And we're in a group alongside the UK. And in the UK, they have a similar business to us. They have a free to air channel and they have um, channels like MTV and Nickelodeon sitting on various platforms. Um, and we report into the president of that group, Maria. So effectively, my reporting line is now into Maria in London. I think because we are part of a broader group, it allows us to tap into things um as a broader group and in this market um obviously i will take courage of the content pieces across all of the platforms um but we'll also have the support and direction from international. And with that comes great things like, you know, the content pipeline. So I absolutely understand your question, because it's a very logical question. I think it is also largely to do with the, the kind of the will to make it work and personality types and all that sort of thing. But we are part of a global matrix organisation. Now, we are not a standalone independent company. And I think we're very appreciative of that because it's a very challenging world. So to be part of a big global company that sends so much money on content globally, I think, you know, both Rod and I are really excited by that and with that comes some change and I think if you work in media at the moment and you're not up for change you're probably in the wrong business. Evan, Rob thanks very much for your time. Thank Thank you. you.
2: Next goodbye to Alan Jones.
7: Well, the experts are telling me in no uncertain terms, and not for the first time, I might add, and I quote, this is my letter from last week, Alan, continuing with the present workload is seriously detrimental to your health. I've listened to the experts, and I'm taking this opportunity to indicate to my radio family that I will be retiring from radio at the end of this month.
2: I I can almost feel a little tear coming to my eye as I hear that, Viv. Um, That was the voice of Alan Jones telling his listeners that it's time for him to retire from radio. Um, What was it that made Alan Jones such a significant broadcaster?
1: I think it comes down to power and influence. You know, we can talk about radio ratings all day. I mean, maybe you couldn't, but I could talk about radio ratings all day and and the potentially flawed methodology behind them and the fact that his listeners listened for so long so that can skew the figures, all of those debates aside and all of the things that people say to detract from Alan Jones and to detract from the power of radio just don't matter when you look at how much influence he wielded he could get very powerful people onto his program he could get very powerful people to listen to him so even if that influence was not as justified as some people thought it should be and even if that influence was disproportionate to his actual audience size or the influence of his audience the fact is he had it politicians take him seriously politicians do get agitated by him and lobbied by him and he could make things happen and he could be quite an intimidating and formidable broadcaster and, and force behind the scenes. So you just can't deny that he was just, you know, an angry old man on radio. He was much, much more than that because of the power and because of the influence.
2: And the the stats kind of prove it. Um, ratings month after month, year after year, his breakfast show was number one in Sydney, and then, of course, he began to get a national voice as well, certainly broadcasting into Brisbane too.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's, he's got a decades-long career. He's been behind the microphone for over 30 years, and he topped Sydney Breakfast for hundreds of surveys in a row. He was definitely the top of the pile, which, you know, only further helped the power and influence factor, no one really came close in terms of that longevity, you know, speaking to the head of Nine Radio, Tom Malone. He, he said that, you know, in terms of that longevity and in terms of that career and in terms of maintaining that position at the top, nobody in Australian media comes close, uh, perhaps because not that many people stick around for that many decades. So other people just haven't had the chance. A lot of people by Alan Jones's age would already have retired. But he was still really in terms of ratings at the top of his game,
2: but Britt there was a challenge because of course, normally ratings equal advertising revenue, but being so polarizing that Alan Jones also became a figure that that united various campaign groups, including um the group that described themselves as mad witches uh sleeping giants was another one on 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 social media um do you see that sort of collective voice as actually having had a factor in the in the decision or on the commercial pressures that 2GB found itself under?
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, as Viv said, in terms of ratings, extremely powerful. And, you know, for a long time, those ratings equaled advertising dollars. I, I mean, I think I read in the City Morning Herald that for a long time, you know, he was reeling in $12 million of advertising revenue a year. Last year when his comments about Jacinda Ardern and Scott Morrison shoving a sock down her throat went to air and the advertising boycott followed from that, that figure dropped 50% apparently to six million. So I mean, look, calling him polarizing is I think, you know, kind. And I thought that, you know, part of Tom Malone's statement that really caught my eye when it came through I was you know very interested in him calling Alan you know warm and funny but also calling out his unique turn of phrase and I think that's incredibly euphemistic about comments that you know are really damaging and you know kind of painted him as a bit of a dinosaur really and while you know that may have you know, not resulted in the advertising backlash that it did 10 years ago even or 20 or, you know, longer. We're now at a point where advertisers do want to be, you know, associated with, and they love using this buzzword, brand safe content, and Alan Jones just wasn't that anymore. So, yeah, it's an interesting question as to whether or not he was pushed, whether or not it all really is just, medical advice and nothing more, but Hugh Mark, CEO of Nine, was very clear himself that, you know, it did have a big impact.
2: Well, Hannah, let me bring you in on that, um, that last point, because um it was very much presented to the listeners that this was Joan's decision based on his own health issues. It's not that long since he signed a new contract. Uh what do we think? Did he jump or was he pushed?
4: Yeah, he's halfway through the. T- <laughs> The two-year contract he signed for $8 million. Um, there's a very interesting piece that ran in Crikey earlier this week written by Stephen Brooke, which suggests that he was pushed um, and the point Brooke makes is that Tom Malone has really been working to make... Nine Radio and more, as Britt said, brand safe environment. You know, he's brought in a lot more women than Macquarie Media used to historically have. He's brought in a lot more. He's kind of listening to audiences in terms of bringing in local people. He's gotten rid of some of the people who were a little bit more contentious perhaps.
2: Let's just stick on the jumped or pushed question because I know that um, what is seems to be a settled fact is that it followed a conversation between Tom Malone and um, uh, Alan Jones at Jones's house. And then the decision followed. But the question is whether um, Jones gave Tom Malone the information or whether Tom Malone told him what the world was thinking. Um, and I think news corps titles suggested it was the latter, but of course, um, You know, one of the questions would be: If so, why, why, why would Nine do that so so quickly after signing a contract?
4: Well, I think if you're going to accept the fact that Tom Malone went to his house, I'm not sure that you can argue that it he wasn't pushed. Really, I think if you're going to call contact your employer and say, "Hey, sorry, I need to end my contract because I've got medical concerns," I'm not sure you'd be calling your your employer out to your house to do that, especially in a pandemic. Um, But so I think if you look at t- that wider strategy of Nine Radio to try and make it a more brand-safe environment, I think it makes a lot of sense for them to move him out. Maybe they weren't in a position a year ago to start doing that. Maybe Ben Fordham wasn't quite ready to step into that new role, or maybe you know there are other things afoot. But I think especially as Brittany said, following the fifty percent cut to revenue to ad revenue that he was bringing in it makes a lot of sense for them to do this. And I also think now is a perfect time to execute that because nobody's going to be mad at somebody exiting the business at this point because of medical issues, again, during a pandemic. So I think everything's aligned and they've found a really great time to get rid of somebody. And I also think we're going to start seeing a lot more media companies being a lot safer with their talent going forward because I think the days of, you know, massive – six, seven, eight-figure defamation payouts may be behind us.
2: Well, Vivian, um, th- I guess that's one other thing to, or to Nine's credit is they also got Ray Hadley on side for the announcement. So he had the the kind of mid-morning slot. Many had expected um, that he would get the role over Ben Fordham. At the very least, many expected that he would want the role Um, he said very nice things that morning, both about the audience he would inherit each day from Alan Jones, but also, um, the support he intended to give to Ben Fordham, who I guess going for somebody, um, uh, you know, younger than both of them represents generational change for the, for the station. What, what did Tom Malone say about that?
1: Well, that generational change thing is really interesting because Ray Hadley himself came out and said he was comfortable with the decision uh, not to be taking over breakfast. So he said, I don't think it would have been the right decision to give a 65-year-old the breakfast shift. And now, of course, we've got Ben who's, who's much younger and I guess has potentially more longevity in him. Who knows, he could be around for... As long as Alan Jones. Another
2: 40 years.
1: <laughs> uh, Tom Malone was, was full of praise for Ben Fordham. He didn't really want to talk about Ray Hadley because he sort of said, you know, that today is the day for celebrating Alan Jones. Uh, in terms of Ben, though, you know, he said that Ben is already a superstar broadcaster. He's won various Australian commercial radio awards for being the best talk presenter, uh, Tom said, "You know, he's he's a great journalist. He's already got a very loyal and engaged audience, and he also made the point that Alan's audience is already very familiar with Ben and supports Ben and likes Ben. So they're they're likely to stick with Ben, according to Tom Malone, and also because Ben has a slightly different approach and does open up the station to younger audiences." Tom thinks that Ben will also open up the audience. So it almost sounds like Tom thinks that Ben could grow 2GB's breakfast share because he'll retain Alan's rusted on listeners and get those on board who weren't a fan of Alan's unique turn of phrase.
5: To Hannah's point as well about this being good timing, I think that she's exactly right because radio ratings are paused at the moment in terms of results, right? So Ben has a very nice, cushy window to keep those rusted on listeners, as Viv was saying, drag, you know, his across. And by the time we see how he's done, he'll have had a really kind of, you know, nice orientation period that he otherwise wouldn't have had in a non-pandemic period where, you know, radio rating surveys plow along as they usually would.
2: Next, Qantas gets back to marketing. We now turn to the week in advertising. Zoe, let's start with Qantas. What have they been up to?
6: So this week, Qantas released a video on social media featuring members of the Australian Girls' Choir and the Gondwana National Choir singing the Peter Allen song, I Still Call Australia Home. Each person was individually filmed and then the sound and their video was mixed together by a creative agency, The Monkeys. The song's been used by Qantas on and off in their marketing since the 90s and it's really become a trademark for the brand. Uh, Mark Green said on LinkedIn that I Still Call Australia Home never fails to move people. And I'm a bit of a softie, so I have to agree. But Viv, what were your thoughts on this?
1: Look, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, I've been an extra in a Qantas ad before that that sings this song. So given that I've mentioned that before, I'm pretty devastated that they didn't contact me and ask me to film myself singing uh, in isolation at home. <laughs> <laughs>
5: I'm grateful they didn't ask you, Viv. <laughs> Nobody needs that.
2: <laughs> oh, look, it feels like we can only answer that challenge now by you singing a line <laughs> or two to show if you've still got it.
1: Absolutely not. Uh, I'm not a singer. I, I was there to mouth only and, and that's not going to work in a podcast situation. So I think it's really interesting that Qantas have done any activity at the moment it's such a delicate time when you've stood down so many workers and so many people are without their normal work and there's no clarity on when Qantas can get back in the skies and when people can travel again and when people will be earning money but you know then there's the flip side do you do nothing do you let your consumers lose inspiration do you completely detach from them and then when you try to come back it's it's more difficult so I think they've they've gone with quite a safe option even though it is emotional you know as Zoe mentioned it's a song that we already know and we already associate with the brand it's a format we already know and already associate with the brand and the benefit of having people do it from home is it's quite a cheap little production, get people to do it themselves, cut it in with some stock footage of Australia looking fantastic, send out the message that we're all in this together. And they've sort of ticked a few brand boxes without breaking the bank.
2: Well, let's get you to come off the fence as well, because we we had a little bit of on the one hand and on the other there. You know, the, um, I guess disciples of Mark Ritson would argue you need to carry on marketing through a pandemic, even if you are, um, standing down your staff, et cetera. You haven't got revenue coming in. So are you saying they should or shouldn't have done it?
1: Uh, I think they should. Uh, I, I don't know that the ad was hugely inspiring. But I think it did enough in terms of reminding us of Qantas' positioning and purpose and its connection with the audience and its connection with Australia. So, you know, I think they've done better work in the past, but that work emerged when we weren't in a pandemic. So, I, you know, I think they've done fine.
2: And Zoe, one of the uh, other advertising themes of the week has been celebrity endorsements uh talk us through maybe starting with a sophie monk for jimmy brings jimmy
7: brings delivers cold drinks in 30 minutes faster than you can master the classic yoga pose the aussie pretzel
3: i am pretzel i am pretzel
6: Yes, so this week, Jimmy Brings, which is a delivery service, uh, really tapped into two things Australia has come to really value during isolation, and that is food and alcohol delivery and also yoga that we cannot actually manage to do. So in this ad, we see Sophie Monk waiting for her delivery and doing a bit of yoga, getting stuck in a very complicated pose. I know I wouldn't be able to do that. And um, having to answer the door in what is called the pretzel. Um, People love Sophie Monk. She reaches a really wide demographic of Australians from that millennial market all the way down to Gen Z based on her work hosting Love Island online. So I think it will reach a really wide demographic of people.
2: We also had uh, an even bigger name Snoop for menu log.
8: It was a great track you know it had its run
6: it, it did a great job but it needs to upgrade that's why they brought me in and you know put some spice on it. this is random that works so menu log has brought on snoop Dogg to re-ma- remix its trademark jingle which i won't sing here but you can google it and this is a campaign coming out of mccann london and menu logs parent company just eat it's launching in seven markets and will be adapted to each market it plays in and so in Australia we got a teaser for what will be a wider campaign launching in June and I'm really looking forward to it.
2: And uh, more locally BWS has perhaps gone slightly more towards the bargain bin end of the endorsement scale compared to Snoop with uh, Celeste Barber. Oh.
3: And welcome to Good Wine Chats with me, your host, Celeste Barber, lover of all things wine. I've teamed up with BWS because I want to help you rock stars find a bloody good drop. And I know that that can sometimes be really hard to do. I don't know if you
5: guys know this, but it's actually my birthday week. I'm pumped because my delivery has just arrived and I'm about to hit up some bubbles after bubbles.
2: So I imagine old Celeste wouldn't have cost as much as Snoop then, Viv.
1: Well, look, Tim, you're right, she probably isn't as expensive uh, as Snoop Dogg, but I I do object slightly to your turn of phrase there about uh, Celeste Barber. She has built her sort of recent career and millions of followers online with her online activities. So it's the perfect fit for her to do an endorsement so i don't know that that makes her you know the, the cheap shitty option she she
2: she does not position herself as up market though
1: she doesn't position herself as up, up market though but you are you are correct uh but she still is somebody who can help you move bucket loads of products and she's somebody who's worked with various brands before in terms of audible and and all sorts of endorsement deals so I don't know that she actually would come cheap and I don't know that she is a a cheap option it's a bit like to, to go back to Alan Jones before that there's a debate about whether or not his aggression and his inflammatory persona is performative or not I would suggest that in a way Celeste's deliberate positioning Uh, of not being high-end is performative and is part of what brands buy and is part of what she sells. So that's the basis on which, sure, she's no Snoop Doggy Dog, but that doesn't mean that you you find her in the bargain
6: bin.
2: So, Zoe, is your boss Vivian correct?
6: I mean, Tim, I also think we shouldn't forget that Celeste Barber raised $51 million for the bushfire appeal earlier this year. Um, from people across the world. So she does have a very large global audience. And even though BWS is not a global brand, I'm sure that has caught their eye. Um, what Viv was saying about how Celeste's brand is more relatable really rings true. I mean, Richard Brett, the CEO of OPR, said in our head-to-head column a few weeks ago that influencers, for want of a better term, that Have a more relatable brand who aren't unfiltered are the ones really pulling through in the pandemic and the brand figureheads that people are going to really turn to because they are making light of a really difficult situation that everyone is dealing with, making it relatable and entertaining. And- yeah, really bringing some humour to the situation.
2: And Viv, I must confess, I was, I was trying to find a phrase when I was writing the script to, to, to link it back to cheapness and bottle shops, and I actually Googled what are unlabeled wine bottles called, which was, of course, clean skins, but that sounded confusing, so I left that out of the script.
1: I feel like you're you're trying to draw a link there that I might know what cheap bottles of wine are called and how they're how they're categorized, Tim. Uh, but look, I, I think that my my knowledge of terrible wine aside, I think we've done a a good job of of wrapping up the sort of Celeste Barber endorsement deal, and and I think. The play between Sophie Monk and Celeste Barber is really interesting because they do have quite a similar shtick in that they do that whole, you know, I'm relatable, I'm a bit dorky, I make mistakes, I get stuck in yoga poses, I love a wine, you can have a wine just like me. So it's interesting that two quite different brands in terms of Jimmy Brings being a disruptor and BWS being a more traditional retail outlet, both going down that female influencer relatable let's have a wine let's treat ourselves type path
2: next viv talks to broadcasters matt okine and alex dyson about their latest project
1: I'm now joined by Alex Dyson and Matt O'Kine, who have recently come back not to the radio world, but to the podcasting world. So, welcome, Alex and Matt. Hey.
8: Hello, Viv. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks,
7: Viv.
1: So, you're both doing an all day breakfast program, which is basically a radio show that's a podcast that's not going to be at six o'clock in the morning. So, Alex, presumably you can do this without having to get up at bumblefuck o'clock.
8: <laughs> <laughs> That's how it was pitched to us actually. Absolutely right. um, that was in the the, the uh, uh, front page document. No, yeah, it's um, it's been good being able to, yeah, mould this show so that it retains the feel of a breakfast radio show. I mean, that's where we first met and worked together. And so we was definitely taking that, but yeah, taking it to the on-demand thing because um, I think, yeah, particularly, you know, the way television is, is going towards streaming services. I think um, audio, there's no reason why that shouldn't uh, be able to as well. But yeah, we'd been sort of looking at getting back into radio again or getting back and working together again. But this this sort of idea of a daily podcast which sort of had the the elements that, um, yeah, the fun elements of a breakfast show, but the uh, also the timing that you referred to as well was, uh, yeah, seemed just like a really, really good idea. And so we jumped at it and we've been working all around at it and then we're, we're here, it's it's here all day breakfast. Yeah, see, Alex Dyson doesn't have a one-year-old like
7: me uh, who <laughs> still manages to wake me up at breakfast bumblefucker clock. So I have not escaped any of the, of this uh, the bad alarm clock, trust me. I was up at 5am this morning, um, attending to her for no reason. There didn't seem to be any reason why she was up. She just wanted to be up. So,
1: so when she's Matt, up, we're all up. Matt you're doing breakfast radio hours but without breakfast radio pay so yeah. that
7: sounds- <laughs> <laughs> exactly in fact um, this particular breakfast radio job seems to suck all of my money gone uh, <laughs> so it's a pretty dodgy deal to be honest I'm going to have to talk to my manager about this one
1: and look one of the tenets of breakfast radio is audience participation and audience interaction so how how will that work with a podcast? Have you just had to let that dream go or will you still connect to your loyal listeners?
8: No, we, we, we knew that going in would be a tough one and so we did what um, any new radio show would do and in order for people to get in touch with us, we made our website Chris Hemsworth's Instagram post from the 10th of March, uh, the picture of him holding a koala. Um, so that comment section became our mailbox and people, <laughs> I think, It was about two thousand comments at the end about the various talkbacks we were going through during the week. Um, So yeah, a lot of interaction was happening, and I'm glad to say that we have graduated out of the comment section of Chris Hemsworth's Instagram and into our own websites and uh, Instagram now. So yeah, it's been it's been great seeing you know people get involved in every almost everything we talk about. It's there's still a big interaction between us and the listeners because. yeah, if there's anything we learned at Triple J, it's that the listener can be a lot funnier than you can be. Um, and They have sometimes a lot better ideas. And so, yeah, we'd be lost, with, lost without them. So, yeah, building that community is super important and uh, it was something we were really focused on when we wanted to make this on-demand stuff happen.
1: Matt, you don't have to deal with traditional radio ratings anymore and whether you've fallen or gained 0.4 points. So, how do you measure success as an all-day breakfast podcast?
7: Oh, I mean, I find the analytics for an online format a lot scarier than um, the surveys. I got to tell you, I mean, the surveys—um—look, they're a joke. They really are a joke. <laughs> the way that the way that it's—I mean, I when I was a teenager, I got a survey, you know. And I filled it out. I've never met someone who's done the survey. Yeah, and you work in media. Do you know how bizarre that is? <laughs> do you understand how strange it is that we're all basing our careers and lives and our programs on these invisible things where barely anyone even gets them? So,
8: and when know, they do, it's shading in little 15-minute increments of when they think they were listening to a statement during a month yeah i mean i was like i was
7: scribbling in you know the results from my survey i was a 17 year old kid i didn't care i didn't know that some <laughs> some person in sales was going to lose their job over my you know over my <laughs> survey i was just scratching in little dots on a page so and um, so i guess
8: the scary thing is we know how many people listen to the show exactly now <laughs> exactly. You can measure
7: not just that the, we know the download we'll, we'll find out you know sooner or later lo- enough we won't just know what who's listening. We'll know the exact age. We'll know the exact location of them, down to the street they live on. Probably, we'll know the very second they decided that it got boring. You know, so <laughs> it, it's like that stuff is that stuff is really terrifying. You know.
1: So when you worked at Triple J, though, you didn't have to worry about the commercial aspect and whether or not brands were on board with your content, whether or not your content was brand safe. I mean, you might have had the political football of the ABC's charter and the taxpayer dollar debate. Now perhaps worse than the taxpayer dollar debate is the advertiser dollar debate. How's, how's that being having to have a commercial mind as well or do you just leave that to other people?
8: Yeah, we don't have a clue. we don't have a clue about about that really. Um, other people are taking care of it, and it's it's been you know, touch wood seven days into our uh, careers in the uh, in the commercial podcast space. Um, it's been really great. Like our first advertiser was Stan, the streaming service, which Matt has a TV show with, so he would also want more people to uh to watch to watch Stan, and so. And I've got it at home, so we're free, you know. Uh, In the future, who knows, it it might start becoming becoming different once advertisers jump on board the the Matt and Alex all-day breakfast train. But as long as we're, you know, if we get sourdough bread uh, advertisers or um, (laughs) wilted spinach advertisers, it will fit in perfectly with uh, what we're trying to do with an all-day breakfast, I think.
1: So, Matt, is the Stan sponsorship just an opportunity for you to promote your program on Stan The Other Guy?
8: <laughs> uh, yes. Um,
7: I, I've uh, literally any time, any, the more people that get stand, the better, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but I would also like to put it out there that my interests don't just lie with um, on demand streamers. You know, uh, let it be known I'm a big fan of beer. Uh, <laughs> so I've been enjoying my furfies recently. Um, love <laughs> using PayPal, very convenient, safe service.
8: Uh, so, <laughs> I and so easy even Matt can figure it out online. <laughs> look yeah, at how look, quickly it sold out, Matt.
7: So well, quickly, you know. There, I think there's an element. There's there's a there's a worry. I mean, th- there's an initial worry that I guess the audience from Triple J is gonna is gonna possibly see it us as, as selling out. But I don't think that. I think that that really only happens when you change the. Content that you're making to fit the brand, and I don't think that we're doing that. Um, where this is like classic Matt and Alex, you know, or this is the, the same old Matt and Alex, a great show, and and uh, and yeah, brands that want to associate with us that's that's awesome. Will
1: you miss anything about traditional radio?
8: What do we miss about traditional
7: radio? I, I miss I the immediacy, say... I miss the immediacy mm. of um, getting feedback from listeners.
8: Um, and the text line at Triple J is is something to behold, like the, the the kooky stuff that comes through when you're least expecting it, which then you could talk to someone and start a whole two-week, you know, narrative of, of a brand-new idea. It's um, something like that, you know, again, only seven days into our podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that we're going to be having some uh, opportunities to do that. But you're right, being live on air and being able to talk about something within, you know, 30 seconds of seeing the text, um, that is that is a bit sad. The, yeah. the good thing is, though, sometimes you would start reading a text live on air and then realise the second half of the text takes a dark turn. And so I'm glad that you do get to review everything before you read it out and you can re-record if things go wrong.
1: What is the weirdest text you had come through the Triple J text line?
8: I do remember one. We were doing talk back on, I think, back at home. Uh, My dad used to cut my hair, okay? And for some reason, like, my sister found that enjoyable to watch, my younger sister, and she kept a bag of my hair at home. So we just had a bag of my hair sitting around from different haircuts. And so we asked asked the listeners what they, like, what haircut or teeth or, like, various things you had left over. And someone sent in a text, and I'm pretty sure it read, I have two 30-centimetre rat's tails, both from separate from separate harvests, both with sun-kissed tips. <laughs> and, <laughs> this guy had grown two rat's tails, chopped them off at separate times, and they were kept, I guess, I think probably in a gold case at home. Um, but, yeah, the term sun-kissed tips is quite hard, <laughs> hard but so enjoyable much. to say, so I've always remembered that text from the do you know what, like?
7: Viv? I feel like um, I will. I think I'm. I I kind of miss the haters. You know, <laughs> I kind of miss them. Wow, yeah. <laughs> because you know, I'm. I'm. The more I'm realizing, the more I mean, like haters. Haters are just like it. It it shows a real sign of kind of growth, and it also means you're being put in front of an audience that doesn't necessarily want. or doesn't hasn't sought out to find you
8: um yeah and people can like triple j because there's no ads and they hate the fact that there's people doing talk back on triple j because it should be about the music man
7: yeah and but i mean that the all those haters are like you know you end up winning them over you know because because you're there every day and they start to get to know you and then then so they, they gradually sort of appreciate what you do. And, and then they become your friends. I mean, I remember at triple J I had, I I remember them clearly dudes who told me to F off on my first week, the same dudes, I will remember their little avatars on Twitter (laughs) etched into my mind that that on our final week, we're like going to miss you so much, you know? And it's like, you hated me three years ago. So, um, there is an element of when you're building your own audience from the ground up, you certainly miss out on that conversion.
8: Uh don't don't worry. I mean that it, it is true, you obviously the people now coming on to all day breakfast will uh, hopefully fans of our past work or are listening because they find our current work, you know, enjoyable in whether it's funny or informative or or both potentially, but uh, the good news is Matt that I did see on uh, our podcast's uh, site on the Apple podcast, we did get a one star review. So you're happy to know the haters <laughs> are still coming over. <laughs> Someone said it. I'm trying to look it up. I well, don't get it. Say, do you one want me to
1: leave all sorts of negative comments on your Instagram and on your Twitter about how much you suck? Like, if that's what you need to thrive oh, and grow, I'll, I'll yeah.
7: <laughs> Say it again, Viv. It makes me feel warm inside. <laughs> like,
1: worst podcast ever.
8: Like. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I did have at Triple J our first show, when I first did my first graveyard shift on Triple J, we got a text in, it was well, I was doing it with Tom Ballard at the time, um, it said, less talk, more music, uh, you're boring, worst on radio. And uh, as two <laughs> an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old <laughs> copying that text, we thought it was quite funny because well, you know we knew we weren't the best on radio, but <laughs> we thought in the entire medium of radio, we couldn't be the worst. But I wrote that Text out on a piece of paper and that's set next to my desk for the next eleven years or however long I was at Triple J and so yeah it's um it can be a, a good motivator to make sure you're on top of your game and you know trying to do the best that you can but it isn't it isn't about yeah pandering to to people but it is about being confident in your own abilities and uh, yeah backing yourself in and I think as Matt said you can win people over in that in that regard.
1: So speaking of the best or the worst in. Radio. How do we feel about the news that Alan Jones is departing the Sydney radio scene this week?
8: Well, I just running scared. I, you know, you can uh, you can only be the best if you beat the best, and so uh, I think I think Alan's made a pretty astute move. Uh, by judging by you know us entering the sphere, they're all no, going to start dropping
7: know. off now, Viv. Yeah, just it's a matter of time. Kyle Kyle, yeah. Kyle's going. <laughs> you just you wait.
8: Running scared. Um, no, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, I wasn't a uh, a frequent listener listener of Alan Jones. I most of the stuff I heard from him is when he was in the news for offending lots of different people for different reasons, and so, <laughs> um. You know, maybe I missed a lot of the good times that they had on the on the breakfast show. So it's it'd be remiss of me to comment because I don't know the full story.
1: Is there a broadcaster on the commercial radio scene that you admire? If not, Alan Jones.
8: Growing up, I remember watching Hamish and Andy's um, TV show when they got thrown that, and I would thought that was hilarious. Um, and was watching that for the what five episodes that it was on air six maybe before it got taken off. But being in growing up in country Victoria, we didn't get um, commercial radio really, so I didn't really get to hear them um, too much. But when I did, yeah, it was it's pretty it's pretty genius stuff. Like the way and talking about their audience being involved in the show and making them sort of the stars of the show, its um, that's a, something I really, really admire. And, yeah, even, you know, going to listen to their podcast now, the way that they've been able to take um, take their listeners and do th- things like events. Like it's tough to do spontaneous stuff when you are in an on-demand sphere, but, yeah, listening to them do, um, yeah, support chicken shops and do a romantic evening in chicken shops. Like they're the kind of stupid ideas that I really like because, you can you can celebrate them and yeah, everyone getting involved makes it non-stupid, which is which is cool. So yeah, I definitely think they they're of you know rightfully so regarded as some of the some of the best in Australia.
1: And Matt, when you stopped doing breakfast radio, did you make the switch to Kyle and Jackie O?
7: I slept, <laughs> uh, I slept long and hard for many 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 mornings. Um, I listen to Triple J almost 24 hours a day um, in the time after I had my daughter. Um, We spend, you know, all day together and she and so, yeah, we would just I just have the radio on and music playing. So uh, that's kind of what my listening habits have been. I really like what Sally and Erica are doing um, in the mornings. I think they're awesome. And it's really I'm really proud of being able to say that Alex and I, kind of got them on Triple J for the first times as, uh, you know, guests on our shows and and to see them then take the take the helm has been awesome. Well, so- it was nice because
8: we supported them for the first time uh, at a gig. Um, Code of Conduct, their hip-hop project, was playing and um, they put Matt's yeah, uh, that's hip-hop right. project Boilermakers <laughs> on as their support at Laundry Bar in Melbourne and I was the DJ. Yep. And so, yeah, they supported us just like we supported them. Um, It's a very symbiotic relationship.
1: So, look, one final question from me. How would you pitch uh, the All Day Breakfast program to somebody who's not familiar with your radio work, doesn't know your background? Like, why should they tune in? What's on
7: offer?
8: Was that a point at me, Matt? Okay. Yes, it
7: was. You're better at selling the radio thing. If this is a TV pitch, I'd have it. But uh.
8: Yeah. Well, I think for one, you know, when it comes to hand signals, we're the best in the game. You know, we're able to tell who's talking first, you know, who's throwing to the other person. If you've got something to say, put your hand up. So, I mean, the conversation just flows so naturally. That's what I'd um I'd say is one of the great things. But also, yeah, it's... We I think we're able to we jump around topics we're able to talk to people about the um the little things and minutiae of life that yeah, I think people appreciate because yeah you can, you can celebrate things like our one of our first talk back, talk back topics came out when a listener discovered on a photo I'd reposted from another listener. That in the background, there was a jar of jalapeno juice with a straw in it. And she was like, Does she, this girl just drink jalapeno juice? What's the story here? So we started to talk back, What's, what's your juice? Um, <laughs> your secondary juice.
4: <laughs> um,
8: and it's, people just really got on board because everyone's had a little, a little sip of the tuna brine or everyone's <laughs> had a little, you know, a little, uh, yeah, moment with that. And, yeah, it can – I think that's that's something you can really have fun with. But also I think something Matt and I are both proud of at Triple J is we can um, have a few more serious conversations as well when it comes to things like whether it's mental health and are you okay day, whether it's things like, yeah, a couple of social issues that could come up, whether it's about, you know, we talked about our mothers on air who had both passed away from breast cancer around Mother's Day. And, yeah, I think we're able to ride that line between serious and silly and – uh yeah topical and funny and it's yeah it's it's a pleasure really to go to go to work I've, I'm we're so stoked with just not even how the show is being coming across and getting downloaded a lot of times which is great but also just having fun together again is um is really nice
1: and now you've toppled Alan Jones so you've done it all <laughs>
8: <laughs> yeah that's yeah, it. the king slayers. That's what they call us. <laughs> I
7: they're think bad. Trump Trump requoted someone recently, when you strike the king, make sure that they're dead well. You know, we're striking. We're putting in some big strikes now. Yeah. All
1: right, Alex Dyson and Matt O'Kine, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks,
7: thanks so
2: much. And that's it for this week. But before we go, Budget Direct announces the launch of its new Budget Direct Money Manager app. The new app is a smart and easy way to track all of your personal finances in one place. Budget Direct is also pleased to confirm that it's providing the new Money Manager app for free to all Budget Direct customers. For more information, just head to the Budget Direct website. That's it for this week, though. Thank you, everyone.
5: Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Tim.
2: Toodle-pip
0: we
1: mm-hmm.